Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love and your goodness. We love the way you've designed your universe to run. As we draw closer to you, we realize how much we need to be healed. We ask that your spirit will be poured out and transform our heart motives, that we can um, value your methods and principles of love and truth and freedom. And draw with us today as we discuss uh, your kingdom, that you will give us insight and, and then ability to take this message to the world so the world can be lighted and you might come soon. pray in your holy name. Amen. And we're going to be doing lesson number 11 in the quarterly discipleship. And the title this week is Discipling Spiritual Leaders. And before we actually get into the lesson, I uh, wanted to share another email I received with the class. We're getting about 100 emails a week or more um, now uh, in response to the, the, the message and, the, and particularly this DVD set that we made in November. Uh, we shipped more than 20,000 of our various DVDs in the last two and a half months already. And uh, so this is just representative. We get these. I can't read them all, but this is just representative of, of what we're experiencing. I can't believe how well your DVDs took off in our church. Glory to God. I gave out 50 copies in Sabbath school. Within 20 minutes, more and more members were requesting DVDs. The next Sabbath, uh, other church members were coming to report to me. I heard some good news about the DVDs you give out. Do you have any more? One of my spiritual mentors uh, reported that this was the most powerful message he had ever received and feels blessed for receiving it. I truly believe this message is right on time as many people are turning away from the church due to the presentation of a dictator God. So many forgot we serve a God of love. People's faces are changed after viewing this DVD. I know God inspired you to create this series. Thank you. I have bought uh, five copies of The God-Shaped Brain, and I won't stop purchasing more uh, until every pastor, teacher, elder, and church leader gets one. Um, and then she asked if we can send her 50 more of our DVDs of, of the various types, uh, and plus the, uh, the uh, Cosmic Conflict Bible Study Guide. Do you think we should send her some more? Yeah. Yes. Well, we already did. It's already on the way. <laughs> okay. So this is the kind of response we're getting. Uh, and uh, from all over the world, people are, uh, are, are telling us, we've sent these to... Um, South Africa, we actually have our own distribution hub now in Australia. So Australia and New Zealand, we'll get them from Australia and New Zealand. Um, uh, England, Germany, uh, Dubai. We had a request from Dubai and sent, sent some to Dubai. And uh, so, and all over the states. So God is really blessing. Uh, let's start with Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, Christ's earthly sojourn was relatively brief. Therefore, the training of, dis- of disciple makers was imperative. Whom should he select? How many should he choose? Jesus' disciples doubtless numbered in the hundreds. Should everyone undergo mass education? Christ understood that leadership was cultivated effectively within small groups, not mass production through lectureship. Limited numbers would be chosen for Christ's initial graduating class. And the first thing that came to my mind is, whom should Christ select? All those people, whom should he collect? What qualities? What qualities would he want in the people he selects? Yes? More than anything, they have to be teachable. Teachable. I think that's key. Wouldn't you all agree? This is, uh, this is uh, a, a view from, from history more than a century ago. You can find it in 5 Bible Commentary 1088. The work of Jesus was to reveal the character of the Father and to unfold the truth which he himself had spoken through prophets and apostles. But there was found no place for truth in those wise and prudent men. Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, had to pass by the self-righteous Pharisees and take his disciples from unlearned fishermen, 
uh, and men of humble rank. These who had never been to the rabbis, who had never sat in the schools of the prophets, who had not been members of the Sanhedrin, whose hearts were not bound with their own ideas, these he took to educate for his own uses. He could make them as new bottles for new wine of his kingdom. These were the babes to whom the Father could reveal spiritual things. But the priests and rulers, the scribes and Pharisees, who claimed to be the depositories of knowledge, could give no room for the principles of Christianity, afterward taught by the apostles of Christ. The chain of truth, link after link, was given to those who realized their own ignorance and were willing to learn of the great teacher. What do you think about that? Willing to learn. Willing to learn. That's what you said, teachableness. Well, you know, I always like to remember when we look at the people that Christ chose, he did choose one doctor. (laughs) But I want you to look at that. Look at the people who, who, look at the the careers, uh, if you will, of the people that Christ chose. What were the careers? One doctor, what else? Fisherman, what else? An accountant. That's the tax collector, the publican, the accountant. Yep. And then we know Christ himself was a carpenter, right? What I would like you to do is ask educationally, what do all of these professions have in common? And if if that's a hard question, think what professions did he not choose, noticeably not choose? No No priests, no lawyers, no theologians. What's significantly different about the education of doctors, accountants, Fishermen, carpenters, versus lawyers, theologians, and priests. There's something significantly different about their education. Anybody? They're willing to learn. Not just willing to learn. I would say the people over here can be willing to learn too. No, you're talking about the quality of the people in the education. You say more open, willing to learn. I'm talking about the education itself, the material. Builders and their healers. Okay. They're builders and healers. Yes. Behind you. Behind you. These had their biases and prejudices from previous generations and just could not accept new teachings. But the the apostles also had biases. We see that Christ is constantly trying to teach them, and they had all these biases about the women and all this other stuff. So they had biases too. But the the key where I'm getting to is. Yes. They were involved in the practical aspects of life. the group all worked with natural design law. Yeah. Doctors work with the laws of health. Accountants work with mathematics. This is the design law. Fishermen and carpenters work with the laws of nature, cause and effect. Whereas lawyers, theologians, and priests work with imposed rules without any inherent consequence. And it biases the mind. It biases the mind when you when you indoctrinate yourself into a list of inherent rules without a list of rules without inherent consequence. It alters how you see God in His kingdom. Thus, I suggest He chose these people because they, by their life experience, were more open to see the reality of God's kingdom as the Creator, the Designer, the Builder who constructed His universe to run on certain protocols in harmony with His nature. Whereas those who have indoctrinated themselves with a certain view of legality, laws that require punishment and so forth, were too blinded and too filled up with their own rules to actually see the design protocols of God's kingdom. Require perseverance to be good at what they 
Yes, and they also, of course, I would suggest that uh, perseverance was seen in both sides. I mean, the Pharisees were persevered. They were dedicated. They were hardworking. They wanted to learn, but what they wanted to learn was they wanted to learn the rules. They wanted to learn the system. So they weren't necessarily, um, it wasn't that, th- that they didn't want to learn and, the, uh, and, and these people did want to learn. I think they both wanted to learn, but the, the, the education itself, not the, not the people in the education, the education itself alters. We are altered by our education. You, you know, that's why th- this church has its own educational system, because we know that if we send kids into other universities, it alters them. We're altered by education. And so I'm suggesting to you there's something inherently risky about imposed ideas of law in the educational system. Yes? At the time of the people that he had to choose from, there probably were many in those other professions who were willing to be part of his, his team. He's the one that set up the priesthood. He's the one that set up you know, these other things. And so I don't think there's inherent badness about these other things. Just at the time, who did he have to choose from? He did not have priests to choose from. No. Yeah, yes, he, he set them up. And, and how did he set them up? For what purpose? To demonstrate who he was. Right, so they were, they were set up as, as, a, as, the, as a, we're taught in Scripture, as a little theater, a spectacle to angels of demand. They're set up as, a, as, a, as an, an, an acting troupe with a theater, with costumes, and with a script to act out something. And when you, when you act out something in a play... Okay, you're acting out a larger reality, but what happened was they lost sight of that purpose of the script that was given by Christ in the Old Testament, and they actually came to view the script in very rigid and legal terms and made their own inherent, and they added to it 500 rules on what you can do and can't do on Sabbath and all these other things. And Ellen White talks about that in Zyre of Ages, how they piled rule upon rule as a way to try to control selfishness in the heart. So I agree with you. God set it up, but did they did they did they, did they apply it the way He wanted them to? No. Yeah. Another thing I believe that the priests that He were talking about, like Nicodemus, were rich people. They were more dedicated to money, I think, than to really God. The, the priests had big far sheep farms outside of Jerusalem, from which, of course, they would get the lambs and goats for sacrifice and would sell them at a good price to the pilgrims coming to the markets at the temple. This is another good point. This is another part of the biases that we're talking about. He talks about how the, the, the religious leaders were very wealthy, had their own sheep farms, would sell their sheep to the people coming to sacrifice, make money off. It was a, it was a money-generating industry for them. Uh, and in their theology, what did their theology view as wealth and poorness, in other words? Did they have a theology that believed if you're wealthy, you're right with God, and if you're poor, you're not right with God? This was te- dealt with with the rich man who came and said, and he goes, and the apostle said, well, if a rich man can't get into heaven, well, who can be saved? They actually had this bias in their mind, too. And so, yes, I think it was difficult. We already got all this wealth. We got all this stuff. We're right with God. We're righteous. And look at all, the, I mean, we wouldn't have all this if we weren't righteous. Yeah, this bias. And what kind of law is that? That's not a natural law either. It's arbitrary, yes. Also, the religious uh, leaders, if the message was different from their sect of religion, their church, their whatever, um, and they decided to follow that, they would lose their profession. You know, in essence, they may be cast out. They may no longer have a spot in the religious community. And And what happened to every one of the people who became Christ's apostles? What did they do with their profession? They all left it, didn't they? 
Right. So, so, so you can leave voluntarily to follow Christ, but, but then that's an act of love, an act of desire. Uh, and so yeah, I'm, I don't even want that old career anymore. But then if you're really concerned with self, then you're putting forth, they might have been like, oh, I'm worried if I actually follow him, I'll lose this here. I want to hold on to this. Yeah. Well, Christ came to exclusionary religious order and make it inclusive. And these, the priests and all would have... They were, they were already set to keep people out, not bring people in. Yes. And was it exclusive by God's design or by their distortion? Yeah. Did you have a comment, Sharon? No. Okay. Um, I was just reading about that this week, Ellen White's comments, and she did say that he chose people that were humble, teachable, and not so, most of them were not real educated but they were willing and humble and teachable. Why do you think he chose 12 rather than 10, 11, 13, 9? Why did he choose 12? Any, any thoughts on that? I, I haven't had a thus saith the Lord, I chose 12 because, I mean, it's going to be speculation. But because there were 12 tribes, yeah. So do you think he chose 12 as a way of making a statement that he was replacing the 12 tribes? With a new system. They're being replaced. We're no longer going with the 12 tribes. We have new 12, and as we read last week from Ephesians 2, 19-22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Was Jesus building his true house, of which the house that the Jews built was simply symbolic? And thus he drove the twelve, so they would recognize, hey, I'm building something the reality of which you were shadowing. Second paragraph. It says, choosing effectively requires advanced wisdom. Jesus approached his heavenly father through prayer to acquire this wisdom. Likewise, prayer should precede the selection of leadership candidates in 21st century disciple making. Since Christ apparently believed that he needed extensive prayer in order to obtain the wisdom required, how much more should today's Christians Petition for divine wisdom when choosing those charged with overseeing the progress of the Great Commission. Thoughts about that? I have so many thoughts about that. Thoughts about that? Because all these people go through their death carrying that banner. And that, uh, so he, he had to choose wisely people who would persevere. Yes, Wendell. He was also choosing his betrayers. Well, that was the, you, you got that. Did Jesus choose Judith? No, he wanted, he wanted to be. This is a, this is this is a historic perspective from the SDA Church in Desire of Ages two ninety three. While Jesus was preparing the disciples for their ordination, one who had not been summoned urged his presence among them. It was Judas Iscariot, a man who professed to be a follower of Christ. He now came forward soliciting a placement in the inner circle of disciples. With great earnestness and apparent sincerity, declared, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. Jesus neither repulsed nor welcomed him, but uttered only the mournful words, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Judas believed Jesus to be the Messiah, and by joining 
the apostles, he hoped to secure a high position in the new kingdom. This hope Jesus designed to cut off by the statement of his poverty. What motive did Judas have for joining the apostles? Selfishness. Self-aggrandizement. Promoting self. Get ahead. Yeah. Greed, selfishness, self-advancement. What do you think about Christ's response? Neither welcoming nor rejecting, but articulating his earthly poverty. And I want you to, with me, consider the different potential outcomes. Had Christ welcomed, we'll look at that one first, had Christ rejected versus what Christ actually did and why. So had Christ welcomed him, what would have been some of the potential consequences and outcomes had he done that? No thoughts about that? The trail would have been more significant. Well, first off, it would have would have potentially undermined our confidence in Christ. How could he welcome somebody he knew was going to betray him? Secondly, what would the other apostles thought of of his leadership into the organization? They already were esteeming him. If Christ welcomes them, might he even have more influence on them with his selfish motives and so forth? How about if he rejects him? Yes. The other disciples would have thought, why does he reject a man, an educated man like Judas? So, so that would have raised questions. Why, why is he rejecting somebody so educated, so qualified? What, what, other, what other potential consequences have rejected Judas? How about Judas gets hurt, his feelings hurt? He gets angry. He goes out and starts land blasting. He says he wants all. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. But he really doesn't want us all to come. He didn't let me come. I wanted to follow him. He wouldn't let me follow him. And so he goes out there and starts his own campaign against Christ because Christ is a bigoted, biased person. Just like the Pharisees. He's no different than the rest of them. They got their criteria. He's got his. Boom. Did you see how that would just really go against him? So what about telling Judas of his poverty? Remember that? Yes. He gave Judas a chance also to see his character, to have a chance to change his heart and mind to show what he came for, and which is to save us. And so he, by letting him come in, he gave Judas his chance that he could have changed his heart and that, and by rejecting him, it would have stopped that. And he came to take all sinners. Excellent, excellent, yes. When he told Judas of his poverty, he wanted to point out, you can, you can come join me, but don't, don't expect to get rich. So he gave, by, by, by pointing Judas to his own poverty, he was pointing Judas to evidence of his circumstance and situation, and then let Judas contemplate uh, and consider the potential meaning of that evidence and come to his own conclusion, perhaps one of repentance, and joining his methods of selflessness, or perhaps realizing this isn't the worldly Messiah that I'm looking for, and leaving of his own accord. Mm -hmm. In other words, he gave him evidence, left him free to weigh it out for himself and come to his own conclusion and set his own course. Does God work with us like that today? Gives us evidence Leaves us free to weigh it out, come to our own conclusion, and set our own course. Yes. The truth will set you free even from your disease. You know, Judas had a disease of selfishness. And Christ, I think, was trying to, to cure him of that. And truth is what sets him free from those lies and that selfishness. Absolutely. Yep. 
truth. We're, is that, you're always anticipating uh, such, such good thoughts because we're, we're going there in just a moment. That's so good. Um, have, have, having chosen the 12, next paragraph, having chosen the 12, Jesus designated them apostles. He commissioned, them, commissioned representatives, invested, he invested them with spiritual authority. This, what's, this, what's spiritual authority? What is that? What is spiritual authority? This is uh, out of a book called Councils to Parents and Teachers, page 439. Christ's words contain nothing that is not essential. The Sermon on the Mount is a wonderful production, yet so simple that a child can study it without misunderstanding. The Mount of Beatitudes is a symbol of the spiritual elevation on which Christ ever stood. Every word he uttered came from God, and he spoke with the authority of heaven. The words that I speak unto you, he said, they are spirit and they are life. His teaching is full of ennobling, saving truth to which men's highest ambitions and most profound investigations can bear no comparison. He was alive, this is an interesting way of saying it, he was alive to the terrible ruin hanging over the race. And he came to save souls by his own righteousness, bringing to the world definite assurances of hope and complete relief. What do you think about this? This idea, he, he, he spoke with the authority of heaven. What was that authority? Did you hear it described in here? See, some people have the, the idea that authority comes from office, position, credentials. If you are the Pope and you speak ex cathedra in your office, now you're speaking with authority. If you're the conference president in general conference session and you're giving a lecture, you're speaking with authority. If you're the pastor of the church and, you're, and you've been ordained in the, in the proper church ceremony, now you speak with authority. Does authority come from office? Yes, you notice what she said. He spoke with the truth of heaven. It's the truth that sets you free. Truth is authoritative. But Jesus was a rabbi, and that's a teacher. And he was teaching them the books of Moses and all of the stuff that they may not have had access to except through the other priests and, uh, uh, of the day. He imparted them knowledge of God's Word. Is heavenly authority the authority of raw power? Intimidation? Ability to destroy the disobedient? Or is it something else? What do you think of this description? Of um, out of Conflict and Courage, page 210. No error accepted by the Christian world strikes more boldly against the authority of heaven. Now, I'm going to just pause right there. You guys start, charge your wheels turn. Well, there's a lot of errors. Which strikes the most boldly at the authority of heaven? Well, this, is, this is this person's opinion anyway. Um, none is more pernicious in its results than the modern doctrine so rapidly gaining ground that God's law is no longer binding upon men. The last great conflict between truth and error is but the final struggle of the long-standing controversy concerning the law of God. Upon this battle we are now entering. Hmm. Thoughts about that. What law? Nothing strikes more boldly against the authority of heaven than an attack against God's law. How is God's law attacked and how does that strike at the authority of heaven? I want you to see the connections here. 
understand why. This isn't just, this isn't just a declaration. It's actually talking about fabric of cosmos stuff here. Well, what does it mean when it, when, when it suggests that the law of God is no longer binding on men? That statement has in it implications. Yes. That's when people go so far that their conscience is seared that God cannot reach them because of their choice. I don't think that's what this is saying. No. To suggest, the people suggesting it might be in that position, but what they're suggesting is, is not what, 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 is not the attack on God's law. The, what, what it, to say that God's law is no longer binding, for instance, do they suggest that the law of gravity is no longer binding on men? Or that the law of respiration is no longer binding on men? Or that the laws of sowing and reaping are no longer binding on men? Or the laws of thermodynamics are no longer binding? Do you understand God's design laws are binding regardless of your beliefs? It doesn't matter whether you believe in gravity or not. It's still binding on you. doesn't matter if you believe that smoking cigarettes makes your lungs better and you can breathe more healthily. When you do that, you're deviating from the law, the design protocol, and you will be damaging yourself. It doesn't matter what you believe about it. It will be injurious to you. It's the law of respiration still binding on you. So what does it mean when somebody says that God's law is no longer binding on men? What's implicit in that? So they've taken the idea of God's law being the protocols upon which life is built and made it into an imperial Roman list of rules that have no inherent consequence. This is the attack on God's law. God is like a great cosmic dictator who makes up a bunch of rules and has to impose them. And now, now because of the blood of Christ, it's no longer binding on us. Yes. Speech Action Prophets reports that Satan was telling many angels that God's law is no longer binding. We should be free to follow our own inclinations. Yes, this is the same attack that started in heaven. That's what it said. What happened to Adam and Eve? Do whatever you like. Because there is natural law upon which life is built to operate, these design protocols. How many Christians have fallen right into this same trap, arguing how the command, this commandment or that commandment was changed, but this commandment is an arbitrary test of obedience, and those who are going to be found righteous will be keeping this commandment. What are they arguing? Arbitrary test of obedience. That God's laws imposed. There's no reason for it other than God said to do it. That's it. They're still over here in imposed camp. And Satan's laughing. The Jews that put Christ on the cross wanted him down so they could keep the Sabbath. They didn't have the wrong day. They had the wrong understanding of the law. That was the problem. And and to do this, and so how does this idea attack the authority, this idea of imposed law, attack the authority of heaven? Because it represents God as a dictator. Represents his law as a list of rules that must be externally enforced, and it strikes at the heaven's authority because it's a lie, and lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Lies believed break the circle of love. And because it also, by the way, violates the law of liberty, one of God's design protocols, the law of liberty. Love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. Try that on your spouse. Tell your spouse what time they have to be home, what clothes they're allowed to wear, when they can use the phone, how much money they can spend. Tell them, just start taking their freedoms and watch what happens to love. Love will be destroyed every time. Rebellion will be instilled in the heart every time. Because love can't grow there. This is God's design. And this idea 
of, a, of an imposed law requiring the lawgiver to use his power to kill those who've deviated breaks the law of liberty. Here's from the book, Desire of Ages. There stood the young Galilean, Jesus, bearing no earthly honor or royal badge. Surrounding him were priests in their rich apparel, rulers, robes, and badges significant to their exalted station, and scribes with scrolls in their hands to which they made frequent references. Jesus stood calmly before them with the dignity of a king, as one invested with the authority of heaven. He looked unflinchingly upon his adversaries, who had rejected and despised his teachings, and who had thirsted for his life. They had assailed him in great numbers, but their schemes to ensnare and condemn him had been in vain. Challenge after challenge he had met, presenting the pure, bright truth in contrast to the darkness and errors of the priests and Pharisees. He had set before these leaders their real condition and the retribution sure to follow persistence in their evil deeds. The warning had been faithfully given, yet another work remained for Christ to do. Another purpose was still to be accomplished. The interest of the people in, in Christ and his work had steadily increased. They were charmed with his teaching, but they were also greatly perplexed. They had respected the priests and rabbis for their intelligence and apparent piety. In all religious matters, they had ever yielded implicit obedience to their authority. Yet they now saw these men trying to cast discredit upon Jesus, a teacher whose virtue and knowledge shone forth the brighter from every assault. They looked upon the lower the lowering countenances of the priests and elders, and there saw discomfiture and confusion. They marveled that the rulers would not believe in Jesus when his teachings were so plain and simple. They themselves knew not what course to take. With eager anxiety, they watched the movements of those whose counsel they had always followed. What do you hear in this? Profound, two paragraphs, profound insights here. First, in the first paragraph, Jesus set before these leaders their real condition. Their real condition. This is natural law, not imposed rules. You're these people's real conditions. He wielded the authority of heaven, truth, and love, and exposed the condition of the Jewish leadership. A diagnosis. It is reality. It is not a legal condition, but a state of being. Their hearts were deviant from God's design. They were in a terminal state. They believed in a false remedy. Thus, they only got worse. The retribution was not an imposed punishment, but the inevitable pain and suffering that unremedied sin brings. What does unremedied sin do to the sinner? Sears the conscious, warps the character, incites fear, oppresses, takes the peace away, causes guilt, leads to more selfishness. It's a spiral down. And, and ultimately, and I've seen, I've seen a few individuals in this condition, as Peter says, ultimately, they destroy the higher faculties, they destroy reason, they destroy conscience, they destroy compassion, they destroy love, and they become, as Peter says, brute beasts, creatures of instinct, that only be caught and destroyed. Christ's teaching. So the first thing we see is Christ diagnosed their condition. Your condition is this. And it was so simple, so straightforward, the people understood it. But something confused the people. Something caused them perplexity. What caused them perplexity? What was the problem that people had? That they were dumb and they couldn't understand Jesus? No, they were uneducated and couldn't understand? No, it was not a problem inherent in their ability to comprehend and understand. What was the problem? Who they trusted. It was a problem, and this is the problem for the angels in heaven. 
who they trusted. A third of them trusted Lucifer and therefore didn't think for themselves. And these people had been conditioned to trust the people in holy office. Trust them. They know more than me. They've studied. I can't tell you how many times in my experience in our own church I have seen this. Well, he's gone to seminary. He's studied for years. He's done this. He must know better than me. Who am I to question? Who are you? A child of God who has their own individuality, their own mind, their own ability to think and reason, to be a priesthood of believers, to know for yourself the right and the wrong and the reasons why. Each one of you has your own identity, individuality, capacity for love, capacity for decision-making. And God wants each individual to develop that to the fullest. And that can only happen with individual decision-making in relationship with him. No other individual can make those decisions for you. This is why Paul says in Romans 14, regarding spiritual things, he says, let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. And he lists a whole bunch of things, including which day you worship on. Let them be fully... Why? Because... Your character is not transformed if you're doing something that you don't believe in, that you've never thought through. You just do it because it's pro forma. I have no idea why I'm here. I just showed up because I'm supposed to. My mom said it's the best thing to do, and I just do what mom says. You see, there's no transformation. But you think through, contemplate, understand, choose it, love it, it transforms you. It's way in the back. James says they did not see their way clearly, the influence of their early training, the teaching of the rabbis, the power of tradition still intercepted their view of truth. And that's yeah. kind of what Yes, that's right. All those things there. But in, in particular, though, in this particular commentary, they were, they were being led astray by the personal influence. They watched their, their faces and countenance of the priests, and they were upset with Jesus, and this caused the, the concern among the people. Who should they trust? So it was not just that they had those biases, which they did. One of those biases being we trust our priests. The priests are God's representatives, and we should trust them. Chosen by God. Chosen by God, yeah. And, and, and therefore, they were afraid to think for themselves. How many do this with a prophet? I love this. I love this one. They do this with the Scripture. Well, the Scripture says... How many of you would have questioned Ellen White? How about 2,000 years ago, you're in a, a New Testament church, and Apostle Peter comes, and, and he's uh, instructing us that we shouldn't associate with the uncircumcised group before Paul had a conversation with him. Now, he's an apostle. He's, been a, he's one of the 12. He's in the inner circle. We should just believe because Peter knows. Could any of us had such a relationship with God, know his kingdom enough to say, Peter, I love you, man, but you're wrong on this. God came for all people. Or we have to wait for another apostle, Paul, to come and confront him first. I hope, see, one of the criticisms I've heard in this community is that this group of people here, in this room, don't think for themselves. You just let me tell you what to think. That, that, That circles this community. That you're just a bunch of thoughtless, mindless people who just parrot back things that I say. I hope you're hearing I'm trying to empower you to be thinkers for yourself. Don't believe anything I say because I say it. Weigh it out for yourself. Study it out for yourself. Check the evidence for yourself. Come to your uncle. Make it yours. That's what the Bereans did. That's what the Bereans did. Monday's lesson. says, um... Information was an irreplaceable component of Jesus' message. Information alone cannot transform, but every transformation includes information. Certainly concepts possess no inherent power for initiating change. God's spirit, however, works through human hearts, constitutes the 
replaceable elements necessary for conversion. You know, I, 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 my heart goes out to the lesson authors in this paragraph because I think they're trying to thread a needle here. It's a very difficult needle to thread. And there's no question that information, facts, even truth without the Holy Spirit isn't going to be very effective. So we have to have the Holy Spirit uh, involved in that. And it, is there a difference, though, between information and truth? Okay, what's the difference? What's the difference? Information can be wrong. Information can be wrong. Okay, information can be wrong. Truth, of course, if it's actually truth, is not wrong. Um, so, yeah, so information can damage. By the way, I thought about this this morning. It was, it's not in the notes, but about lies. There, there, there's basically, uh, I had this idea came to mind, there's kind of two types of lies. There's the lies that actually directly injure and hurt. And then there's the lies that are intended to heal and protect, but actually also injure and hurt. <laughs> For instance, there's, there's the lies that people say, uh, you know, they lie about, uh, you know, the, the lies Satan told about God. Just a lie, breaks everyone's trust, lots of pain and suffering. But then there are those kind of lies that people tell, um, you don't, you don't have cancer when you actually do have cancer because they don't want to upset the person. Um, those kind of lies. You understand what I'm saying? Now, those kind of lies ultimately will be revealed by what? Reality. Reality, you can't avoid it. Reality, if you got cancer, it's going to eventually show up. And you can tell somebody they don't have, and somebody can get comfort for that. Oh, I'm so relieved. I'm so relieved I don't have it. Oh, I feel so much better now. But are they actually healed? No, they're not healed. There are spiritual lies. Now, I'm telling you this because there are lies like this. I've accepted Jesus' legal payment for my behalf, and I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. I'm saved. I have peace. I have peace. And that lie comforts me. Nothing I can do now to be lost. I can go out, rape, pillage, and murder. It doesn't matter. It's all been paid, past, present, and future. But I have peace. You see, that lie comforts a lot. And also that, that I, I've been saved, where's the focus? It's on the self rather than focusing on the relationship. What's your relationship with Jesus like? Do you know him so well? Do you trust him with your life? Do you, do you, would your heart hurt if you did something that, that misrepresented him? Russell? This statement here that says, uh, the concepts possess no inherent power to initiate change, and I have to respectfully disagree with it. But if we have a mistaken God concept, that has a power to change, and not for the better. Absolutely. If you have a correct God concept, that has the power to <clears throat> to allow you to open your heart and, and allow the Holy Spirit to complete that transformation process. Yeah, it, 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 are very powerful to change. Let, let's walk through that cascade. Imagine you're in that healthy marriage. Somebody comes to you that you love and trust, like your friend or parent or brother or sister, and tells you a lie that your spouse is having an affair. There's no truth in it, but you believe the lie. If you believe the lie, does something inside you change? Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust results in fear and selfishness. I don't trust you anymore because I'm believing a lie, so now I'm afraid of you, and I've got to watch out to protect myself, so I better get to the bank and get some money, and you can't sleep with me because you might bring me a disease, so I'm watching to protect myself because I can't trust you. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. In the world today, that's called survival of the fittest, the infection to God's creation that brings destruction. Fear and selfishness result in acts of sin, bad behavior. 
the acts are symptoms of a heart deviant from God's design where love and trust has been broken. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, you say if you commit adultery, bad act, you commit sin. I say if you lust after a woman in your heart. He goes on many other places to describe the same process. And then that condition is terminal. That's a terminal condition. This is inherent. This is how we're born. Born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Born with hearts, deviant from God's design. But the healing solution starts with just the opposite. Truth believed destroys lies and restores trust. I see God for we really. He's not like the devil said. Uh, my, I, I realize my spouse hasn't been cheating on me. This person lied to me. I trust him again. Well, truth believed restores trust, opens the heart. We open the heart to God. And when we open the heart, he pours his love into our hearts, Romans 5.5. 5. And then we have new motives. The heart is being transformed by the dwelling spirit because we've opened the heart and invited him in. I stand at the door and knock. Anyone that opens, what's he knocking with? The truth. That's the, that's the, the, the hammer, so to speak, that the Lord knocks on our heart with. Not a fist, the truth. And we take the truth and open the heart. Then he comes in and lie, truth believe, destroys lies, restores trust, open trust. The spirit comes in, we get a new heart motive. And that new heart motive, we have acts of righteousness that reveal God's true kingdom and transform the character. And this is an eternal life condition. It's just the opposite. And this is why Christ says in Hebrews that by his death he destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. His power, life eternal, John 17, is that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, so the eternal death, life eternal is knowing God, eternal death is not knowing God, Satan's power is the lies that we believe that break our trust in God. That's his power. And he destroyed those lies and won us back to trust. Yes. Is there truly differences in belief, though? Uh, it seems like people can say, yes, I believe such and such, but unless they're willing to act on it, unless they're willing to become a part of them, they can believe it, but not really truly. So if I have a concept of truth or whatever, but I'm not willing to act on it, I'm not willing to make that part of me. So, so th- I think this is some of the, the inflexibility of our language. Um, one of the things we learned in psychiatry is, Insight does not equal change. Just because somebody has an insight, has an awareness, gets it, sees an idea, doesn't mean, oh, I, smoking is actually caused cancer. I never knew that. I've got an insight. Does that mean they quit? Insight does not equal change. So this idea of believing cognitively, I believe it cognitively, doesn't mean they apply it. And thus somebody, oh, a couple hundred years ago, 150 years ago or so, said something like this, that the feeling is what? By the Holy Spirit, the ceiling is being so settled into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so that you cannot be moved. Intellectually is this cognitive understanding. I get it. Spiritually is the heart transformation that we live it. I mean, isn't that what James referred to? Faith without works is dead. You can have faith you believe something, but if you don't apply it. Right. So this is knowing with your head, but not living in your heart. Exactly. And so I appreciate that very much, Wendell. Tuesday's lesson, it says, 21st century disciple makers must thoroughly acquaint themselves with Scripture, the source of authentic spiritual information. Now think about that statement. What does it mean, authentic spiritual information? Are they saying if it doesn't come from Scripture, it's not authentic spiritual information? And if it's not authentic, does that mean it's fraudulent? Hmm. Are they suggesting that Scripture is the only place for authentic spiritual information? Or is acquainting yourself with it enough? Or is acquainting yourself with it enough, yeah. 
can Scripture be a place where they claim authority for actually false spiritual information? Let's give some examples. There is a spiritual idea taught by some in Christianity that God predetermines who will be saved and who will be lost. Some even teach God predetermines who will be raped, who will be molested, who will go to prison, who will die in car crashes, who, uh, uh, and we have no free will, that God is sovereign and thus he is in control and has predetermined some for eternal hell and others for eternal salvation. Some, some teach this idea. And they use this text. They've got the Bible to support them. Romans 9, 16 through 18. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and my name might be proclaimed on the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Bible, see? True spiritual authority, right there. Should we just, God said it, I believe it, that settles it? Should we question? Should we think? Should we go, wait a second, hold on. Time out. There's actually others that teach the opposite of this, that we actually have free will choice. And they use Bible texts like John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Well, now we have competing Bible texts. What do we do? How can we tell which view? And this is critical. What method do you use? When you have people present theology theology concepts, ideas about God, beliefs, doctrines to you, what method do you use to determine? they got a Bible text that seems to, on the surface, uh, support what they're saying. What method do you use to determine which view is right? Precept upon precept, Bible. So, sola scriptura precept. See, we reject that idea here. We use the, the, the method Jesus used. And Jesus used the integrative evidence-based approach. We don't, want to, we don't want to devalue Scripture. We don't want to exclude Scripture. We don't want to undermine Scripture. Scripture should always be included. But it's only one of three threads God has given us. He's given us two of the threads. Romans chapter 120, God's divine nature is seen in what he has made so that men are without excuse. We want to include God's laws in science and nature. And taste and see that the Lord is good. Or he said to, said to um, Thomas, put your hands in my side, stop doubting and believe. Our experience is a third thread. All three threads need to harmonize. We take one thread alone, this is why there's 34,000 different Christian groups today all claiming the Bible support them. Because they take the scripture and they don't require it to harmonize with science and nature and actual legitimate human experience. So, for my paraphrase, this is how I paraphrase those texts. How shall we interpret this? Is God unfair? Is God arbitrary or unjust? Absolutely not, in no way. For he says to Moses, I choose to be merciful in all mankind, and I will have compassion on the entire human race. Our healing doesn't depend on some effort, desire, or work on our part, but on the fact that God is merciful and offers the remedy freely to everyone. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up so that I might pour out my truth upon you and that my character might be fully known throughout the entire world. And even though you resisted me and fought against me, I was patient and merciful with you. Therefore, God is merciful in whom he chooses and stern to those he chooses. God's actions to Pharaoh, were they merciful or unmerciful? 
See, if you have imposed law construct, God was punishing Pharaoh. If you have designed law construct, God was therapeutically intervening to diagnose and to redeem Pharaoh. See, if you, as a parent, give your child vaccines, are you punishing? If you come in and see your child at age three playing with lighter fluid and matches, and you sternly rebuke them and take them away, are you being merciful or unmerciful? Okay? God's actions to Pharaoh, what were they, merciful or unmerciful? What happens in the mind and character of those who worship false gods? Paul leaves us in no doubt, he tells you in Romans chapter 1, that they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, therefore they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, they preferred images made with their own hands to the knowledge of God, therefore their minds became futile, depraved, and darkened. If God does nothing to Pharaoh, his mind becomes darkened and depraved. If the parent does nothing to the child playing with lighter fluid and matches, they're going to destroy themselves. God loves Pharaoh too much to sit by and not intervene. And he sends Moses to send a message. And every one of the plagues of Egypt were a, a exposure of the impotence of those gods. That's what they were. They were an attack on every one of the gods. Not an attack on the people, primarily but an attack on the gods, including the the death of the firstborn, because in Egyptian mythos, the firstborn was descended with divine authority from heaven and was God's representative on earth. Thus, Pharaoh's firstborn came from the gods and had divine power. And therefore, all the other gods were not as powerful as the firstborn coming. And therefore, that firstborn, when they wouldn't repent on every other of the nine of their gods that were shown to be impotent, God said, even your divine firstborn can't stand. But it was God that reversed Pharaoh's order. It was Pharaoh who ordered the firstborn Israeli Jews. Initially, yes. And it just turned around on him. Yes, exactly. But it came out of their mythos. Yeah. Yes. So were God's actions against Egypt punishments or therapeutic interventions? I see them as therapeutic interventions. This week, Dr. George Graves sent me an article I had not come across before. And uh, it's one of those historic documents, uh, October, Review and Herald, October 21, 1890, uh, two paragraphs. I think you'll find this quite interesting. Then opened he, Christ, their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Before this opening of their understanding, the disciples had not understood the spiritual meaning of what Christ had taught them. And it is necessary now that the minds of God's people should be open to the understanding of scriptures. To say that a passage means just this and nothing more, that you must not attach any broader meaning to the words of Christ than we have in the past, is saying that which is not actuated by the Spirit of God. The more we walk in the light of truth, the more we shall become like Christ in spirit and character in the manner of our work, and the brighter will the truth become to us. As we behold in, in, in the increasing light of the revelation, it will become more precious than we first estimated it, from a casual hearing or examination. The truth as it is in Jesus is capable of constant expansion, of new development, and like its divine author, it will become more precious and beautiful. It will constantly reveal deeper significance and lead the soul to aspire for more perfect conformity to the exalted standard. Such an understanding of truth will elevate the mind and transform the character to its divine perfection. It is not God that puts blinders before the eyes of men, and makes their hearts hard. It is the light which God sends to his people to correct their errors, to lead them in safe paths, but which they refuse to accept. It is this that blinds their minds and hardens their hearts. 
They choose to turn from the light, to stubbornly walk in the sparks of their own kindling. And the Lord positively declares that they shall lie down in sorrow. When one ray of light which the Lord sends is not acknowledged, there is a partial benumbing of the spiritual perceptions. And the second revealing of light is less clearly discerned. And so the darkness will constantly increase until it is night to the soul. And Christ said, how great is that darkness. What did you hear? How do hearts become hard? And it's very interesting because this is exactly, if you read the the Old Testament, you're going to find passages that say God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You'll find some that say Pharaoh's heart was hardened in a neutral sense. And you'll find some that say Pharaoh hardened his own heart. You'll find all three. And all three are true in the sense that Pharaoh's heart could not have been hardened had he not had the opportunity to understand and reject truth. Every time we reject truth, our hearts harden. So God hardened his heart by by shining more light and more truth onto Pharaoh than any other ancient ruler. And Pharaoh repetitively rejected it, rejected it, and rejected it. So on whom does God want to have mercy? All. All. And whom does God want to harden? It's a little bit of a trick question I'm throwing at you. From his heart motive, he wants no one to harden. But from the outworking of his law of love and liberty, does God want people to be free to make their own choices and experience what those choices bring. So under the context of what we read then, God has mercy on who has mercy. He hardens not by an act of his will, but by presenting truth and leaving them free and not intervening and making them do things the way he wants, but in so leaving them free and rejecting truth, they become hardened. That's how he hardens. It's beautiful. Yes? At one time, uh, I think... Pharaoh said, tomorrow I will decide. In other words, he procrastinated for another day what he would do about Moses' request to let the people go. Tomorrow, in other words, we also have the custom of saying, well, tomorrow I'll think about it and I'll study it some more. There is certainly a place with new ideas to take some time for reflection, contemplation, study, and prayer. So we're not, we're not suggesting that. But what you're suggesting is not a person who's actually interested in really wrestling through the issue and coming to, to their own conclusion, but basically saying tomorrow is a way of avoiding ever dealing with the issue. Right. Yeah. And that's a danger. That's what he did. Yeah. Way in the back. We could teach our children this, this focus on, on the, you know, plagues of Egypt, you know, as being, Attacking really are showing the, the, the but you can teach our children this. I I know, but we don't. It seems like this gets missed. It, it's it's taught as God punished Egypt, God punished Pharaoh. That's because the people who make those books come at it with the bias of an imposed law construct. And when you come at the imposed law construct, then God's actions are seen as imposing punishments. They see the same thing in Genesis. Instead of seeing God's therapeutic interventions in Genesis right after the fall, that God intervenes in love to help them, they see God punishing them for sin. But he's not. He's intervening in love. We've talked about that before and shown how that works. Every one of God's actions is always rightly understood an expression of love. Every one. It's the devil who wants us to see God with attributes of unkindness, severeness, unforgiveness, uh, and, and a desire to actually hurt his children. That doesn't come out from Christ, and it doesn't come out from God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are 
as beautiful as Jesus revealed you to be. We have so much to learn, Lord. We love how your kingdom works, though. We love this idea that, that truth is ever unfolding, ever expanding, that you as the infinite one, that our finite minds can for eternity always be plumbing new depths, new insight, new perspectives that will thrill our souls and transform our hearts. We, we pray for your spirit, the spirit of truth, to come and enlighten our minds and transform us to be like you and empower us with effectiveness to take this message to the world. We also want to pray for the materials that we've been sending out around the world, that your spirit will go with those materials and, and bring hearts to, to understand the way your kingdom operates and, and the world will soon be lightened and we'll see you face to face. We pray in your holy name. Amen.